Malachi in what, seven minutes. So as we've been doing throughout this series, this is the last of, of uh, 12 weeks that we've gone through the Minor Prophets and looking at this series called Ancient Wisdom. So in Malachi, we're going to focus in kind of the, the conclusion of all of kind of what we've walked through and the specific things that are laid out in this book. So this is a pretty important book because the way that Scripture unfolds and the way the narrative unfolds of, of human history is that, uh, that after Malachi and after kind of the Minor Prophets and after the, these prophets who've been appointed to kind of remind God's people, you're walking down the wrong path, you need to return to me, you need to come back to me, there's this period of approximately 400 years where there isn't this appointed prophet or this prophetic voice coming to God's people until Jesus shows up. So this is really important for us to kind of hone in on that and, and, and look at that again. And, and there's themes in, the Mal- in Malachi that are just like some of the other things that we looked at, which is common theme that seems to be like kind of the cycle of almost every one of the minor prophets, or at least if it's found in a portion of it, is that God's people have chosen to go their own way. God, in his love and his compassion, warns them, don't go that direction, come back to me, because if you don't, this is what will happen. That's kind of the summary, which is true of Malachi. It's important for us because... I wish that somehow over thousands and thousands of years of of engaging God and following Jesus, somehow we as human beings would change. But when we read through the Minor Prophets, we're like, wow, thousands of years have gone by, but we're the same people. We're the same people that forget what God has done. We forget what God's called us to. We forget important things about that that we have to constantly be reminded, or we conveniently forget what God has already said to us. And I think sometimes that what we need from God is that we need God to take us down memory lane of our spiritual life, to be reminded of the key points that he called us to obedience or that he he brought some point of clarity to our lives. So we remember, oh, that's right, I need to come back to that. Anybody ever taken a journey down memory lane of your life? Anybody done that? So a couple weeks ago, we were out, Kim and I were out in the valley, in, in San Fernando Valley. And so I grew up out in Van Nuys, and um, so kind of back in the general area of where I grew up. And every once in a while, I'll feel a little nostalgic, so I'll, we'll take a trip. So we're out there, and, and I said to Kim, I said, hey, can we take like a five to ten minute detour? And we'll go down the street that I grew up on. She's like, sure. So, so we take the turn, and we're driving there, and, and, and it's weird when you've like... I feel old now because everything's changed. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you who are like old like me, right? So you're driving and you're like, I remember that corner. Oh, that business wasn't there. There was a dirt lot there. There was this. And so you're kind of going down. And, and so I remember we get to, I live, grew up on Columbus Avenue, which is just off of Sepulveda near Burbank. And so I turn down there and, and our house is the second house in on the block. And so as we turn in, I, my, my eyes go directly to the house and we pull up and we slow in front of it. And now, whoever's bought it, they totally redid it. In fact, it's crazy. My parents paid like $39,000 for that house. Zillow has it like seven to eight to almost $900,000, depending on when you look at it. Isn't that crazy? So times have changed, definitely. So I'm looking at this house, and then as we slowly start driving down the, red, red, down the street, I wasn't ready for this, but I start going by every house. I'm like, oh, I remember who lived there. I remember this particular incident. And, and Kim is so gracious. She's like, putting up with me, remembering my childhood, you know, remembering the glory days and the good and the bad. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And, and that was a house that there was like a single mom, and she always struggled. And sure enough, her house is overgrown, and she's still struggling, which is crazy. And then, and then my friend, my, one of my best friends, his house didn't even look the same. But I knew by the address, that's his house. And then the next house is like, oh, that's where a creepy old man lived. And we looked at, creepy old man probably still lives there from the look of it. So we're just kind of going, and then I remember, oh, that was my friend who actually died when he was a teenager in a car accident. So I'm just taking, then we have time we get to the end of the street, I'm like, this wave of like just emotions of good memories and bad memories and all, it all comes rushing back. And so 
Kim didn't know it, but I just kept taking the, the route that took me to my elementary school. And I'm like, hey, I used to go down this street. And, and I thought eventually this tour is going to have to end. And so we, we kind of broke off from it. But I remember just, you just think through, oh, I forgot about that person. Oh, I forgot about that incident. Oh, I forgot what happened. And, and you just take that drive down and boom, everything starts coming back to you. And you're like, oh. And I think sometimes I think that's kind of in a, in a nutshell what God does for his people. It's like, let me take you back to what I told you. Let me remind you of who you are and what your life's supposed to be about because you have a tendency to forget. So this morning, and kind of in conclusion, there's really kind of two messages in one this morning. One is the first part is the things specific to Malachi that God calls his people to return to him and things that they've forgotten that need to come back to. And then the last part is kind of a summing up what we have to look forward to in preparation for that in, in what Jesus does when he returns. So we're going to start with God is calling us to return in a number of different areas. There's three of them. One of them is worship, one of them is relationship, and then one of them has to do with the resources. And none of these are very easy. This is one of those messages you're like, can I skip this one? And God's like, nope, it's in the Bible, so you're going to teach it. So, so if you have your Bibles, we're, um, the first few patches, passages will be up on the screen. But the first place that God calls us to return to him, to remember him, is in our worship. And this is from chapter 1 in Malachi, verses 12 through 14. So let me read this and we'll talk about it. He says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruits, that its, its fruits may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort it, it says the Lord of hosts. You bring what you have been taken, taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now you saw it in the video. What was what was God? What were God's people doing? Well, they're obviously at that time their form of worship came in the avenue of sacrifice before God, the covering of sin and the offering of God to what is best. They offered what the Bible says is their first fruits from their flock, from their produce. They offered God the best of what they had. But what was happening is that people were giving the appearance that this is good enough for God, but they knew this was not the best that they had. It was second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. So it wasn't, it was blemished. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't what God was asking from them, which beyond that is true of our lives, that God doesn't, God asks us to give all of ourselves to him. He asks us to, to lay our lives down to follow him, to give the best of who we are. He's, we're not supposed to hold back, but what were they doing? They were making it seem as though, hey, this is good enough, and as long as everybody else buys into the fact that this is a good sacrifice, hopefully I can fool God in this and somehow be justified because I'm bringing my worship like I'm supposed to before God. What's interesting is that this is a characteristic that runs through God's people throughout human history. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, we actually get a specific term that we know highlights more vividly what's going on here. It's this term called hypocrisy. It's the very thing that Jesus went after in the religious leaders. What? They appeared on the outside to be devote followers of God, but on the inside, they were playing games. They were pretenders. They were not real. They were playing the role of a follower of God, but inside they weren't. They were going in the opposite direction. And that is something that we have to take into account in our lives today. Now, so we broaden this and understand this. When we say the term worship, usually our default is what? 
30 minutes on a Sunday morning. Worship. How I sing, do I raise my hands, do I cry, all that stuff. No, that's a sliver of worship. Worship is our entire life. It's everything. It's the way we love our spouse. It's the way we do our job. It's the way we handle our finances. It's the way we relate to our kids. It's the way that we relate to our neighbors. It's the way we live our lives. Am I giving God the best of who I am in everything that I do as a way to honor and glorify Him? That's what worship is. So when we give less than that, but we want people, and somehow we think God, to think that I'm giving all of what I, of who I am, but I'm really only giving 50, 60, 70 percent of who I am, then what am I? I'm a hypocrite. I'm a Greek actor who takes a mask and puts it on in the play and says, I'm playing a role that's not true of who I am in real life. And this is something that God goes after because God wants us to be pure and right all the way through. He doesn't come to play games to say, listen, I'm just going to kind of do a little bit of a work in you. I'm going to touch a portion of your life. No, he transforms 100% of who we are. Therefore, he requires 100% of who we are. And we know how seriously God takes this because if you go to the New Testament in Acts chapter 5, there's a story in there that should scare us to death because it's like, whoa, God really had a grumpy day in that moment because he did some really crazy stuff. So the church gets birthed, and this beautiful thing is happening. The power of the Holy Spirit comes. People are coming to know Jesus, and this community called the church so is sold out to Jesus that they're literally going and selling their property and then bringing the money and laying it at the apostles' feet so they can disperse the money to people who are in need. It actually says that there's a season in the church where nobody had need because of the generosity that was flowing. So it's this beautiful thing. Then you get to Acts chapter 5, and there's this story about this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And so they're in the midst of all this, and so people are going out and selling their property, and so they go out and they sell a piece of property, and then they bring the money to the apostles, and they lay it down, but they made the appearance as though they were giving all of the money that they made from that land, but they were actually holding back some for themselves. Nowhere do you find that they were required to give all, but if you're going to make the appearance that you're giving all, you should give all. So you think, oh, it's just a little oversight. No, what is it? It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy in their worship. So what does God do? This is crazy. On the spot, God takes out Ananias, kills him on the spot, just like that. You're like, woo. Takes a whole new idea to offering, doesn't it, right? And then we know his wife comes in later. She doesn't know her husband's dead, and she starts telling the same story. Boom, she's dead on the spot as well think, wait a second, what happened to mercy and grace and forgiveness and Jesus' death on the cross that covers our sin? Now, I'm speculating on this one, but I, I, I can take an educated guess that most likely God didn't condemn Ananias and Sapphira to hell, but he probably took them into his presence as a way to saying, listen, I have been dealing with hypocrisy in my people for thousands of years, and now as the church is birthed, this is not going to be a part of who they are. This is no longer going to carry into their future. It's been a part of their past, but it won't be a part of their future. So he takes two people out and say, listen, you're not going to spread the poison that's been there forever. Why? Because God wants us to worship fully. He wants us to give all of who we are to who he is and not play games. If we're going to give 50%, represent 50%. But God wants us to give all of who we are. So he calls us back in our worship. So when we look at our lives and we think about ourselves, are there areas that we know that we're not giving all of ourselves to who God is and what he wants to do in our life? Are we holding back? Second thing, by the way, these don't get any easier, okay? Chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, God wants us to return in our relationships. Malachi 2, verse 13, it says, And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? God, godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So God goes after marriage. He goes after with the way they're treating marriage. This is very significant because historically you go back to the Garden of Eden, you go back to the early part of Genesis. God gives marriage to humanity for a number of reasons, but one of those is that marriage is the direct reflection of the image of God in human form. It says in Genesis, God says, let us create them in our image and it says, male and female, he created them. And then Genesis chapter 2, it says in the, in the context of marriage that, that a, a husband leaves his parents and then he cleaves or is bound, one flesh, to his wife. And that's, that one flesh, that concept, is the same word, the same concept that used to describe the oneness of God. So God's saying, listen, in marriage you reflect my image and my nature to the world. So what's happening in this context? This is literally what's happening. So God's people are supposed to be happily married to their spouse, not focusing on anybody in any other nations, their forms of worship, their women. And what are the guys doing? They're, they're seeing people from around them, and they're looking at other nations, and they're checking out the women, and they're going, wow, they're pretty good looking over there. And they start looking at their wife and going, man, she was good at one point, but boy, she didn't look good anymore to me. <laughs> so they're thinking, how can I come up with a way out of this? How can I find a loophole that I can get a certificate of divorce, a contractual agreement that says, because my wife didn't do this, then I, by the law, can issue her a certificate of divorce and then somehow legally walk away so that I can go pursue immorality. That's what was going on. And God is saying, you're taking the very thing that I've given you to reflect my image and my nature to the world, and you're treating it like some legal contract that you can get in and out of as, as quickly as you want to because you have other interests. They were treating marriage just in a way that just, had, it was grieving God's heart. But that's why, and hear me, I, I want you to know that there are many in our church who have experienced divorce or maybe even contemplating, and, and this is always something that's difficult. It, it, there's no winners in divorce. In fact, if you, oh, it's a good divorce. There's no such thing as a good divorce. But I want you to understand, there's no, no intention of guilt or shame on anyone. But, but one of the things I want us to, to grasp what God is saying is that we have to have a deep and profound value for marriage. It's because it's something that reflects his image in our world. And that means we have to understand that what God is doing is he's, in marriage, he's bringing that bond together. Now, I know there's biblical precedent for divorce and things like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the beauty of what God brings together in marriage. One of the things that, that I share, every, almost every wedding that I've, I've done, is that there's this image in, in Genesis 2 of one flesh that, that God has bringing together, and there's a beautiful picture in nature. There's a place in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil where I had a chance to go to one time, and it's called the Joining of the Waters. It's where the Black River and the Amazon River come together. And it is one, this, one of these amazing natural phenomenons that occurs. If you go out in a boat, it's two rivers that come together, and they actually touch each other, but for like a couple of miles, they flow right next to each other, but they don't mix. 
They're literally still two distinct rivers just traveling side by side. But as you continue out in the boat, eventually you start to see them begin to mesh together. And then if you continue going on, what happens is the Black River disappears and all of it becomes the Amazon River. Two rivers becoming one. You know what's true about nature? It's true about marriage. If you keep following the Amazon through all of northern part of Brazil and you eventually get to the ocean, you know what you will never, ever find? The Black River somehow parting itself again and becoming its own river. You don't find that. It's all the Amazon River until it reaches the ocean. The same thing is true. The bond that God creates, that's why God's saying, listen, you can't just wave around a certificate of divorce because you're bound to that person. You've made that commitment to them. And by the way, especially this is not, women, you're not exempt. This goes both ways because you're like, God, get the guys, tell them, right? No, it's both ways. It's the commitment that we've made. And if you find yourself, you know, in a place you're like, wow, I don't feel that I'm as connected to my spouse as I used to be or I'm not as attracted to, I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, the issue is not your spouse. The, in, in this passage, the issue wasn't the wives. The issue was the husbands. It was their problem. So you have to take a step back and say, okay, in me, what is wrong? God, what is wrong in me? What do you want to change in me? How am I supposed to be a better husband? How am I supposed to be a better wife? Why? Because you gave me this person, and I'm bound to them. How do I make this marriage work? So he starts with our worship and moves to our relationships. And again, it's, it doesn't get any easier because resources has to do with money. Worship, marriage, or relationships, and money. Very easy topics to talk about on a Sunday morning, aren't they? Malachi chapter 3, so now God talks about money. Verse 6 through 12, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your father you have turned aside from my statute and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will, we, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, or another word is offering. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more room or no, no, no more needed. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. If you've been in church and you heard someone talk on money, they've gone to this passage. So what's happening? God gives instruction to his people and says you're supposed to tithe, which means 10%. But to get clarity, so... In the Old Testament, for God's people, according to the law, they were to tithe, but their tithe was segments of 10% broken up over a period of three years. So there were two annual tithes of 10% every year, and then every third year there was another tithe. So if you basically total up the way that Israel gave, it was about 23 and a third percent of their income ended up going back to God. So that's almost a quarter of everything that comes in went back to God. Now that's important because... This is, this is the key, and this is why it always gets, I'll tell you, the two issues I can tell you that always get awkward in church, sex and money. I know, I'm a pastor, okay? I can tell the temperature in the room. When you say those two words, people are like, oh, what is he going to say? So you know as what I'm about to say, so you're clear on this. I do, and I've told you this before, I do not look at giving records. 
So I, do, I am not saying this because, oh, so-and-so's here and they don't give. I'm going to let them have it. I don't know if you give. I don't know how much you give. I do that on purpose. Because before God, my, my, my job is to get you to Jesus and let him transform your heart, not to look over your shoulder like the law. We're supposed to be a generous people because Jesus has been generous with us. So in the Old Testament, you have this concept of tithing. And then you get to the New Testament, and, and so many times people will say to me, well, I don't tithe because tithing was Old Testament law, and we're no longer under the law, we're under grace. And I say, okay, fair argument, let's go to the New Testament, let's see what they did in the New Testament. We'll say, well, they certainly didn't tithe. I'm like, no, you bet, they didn't tithe. So if you could read, started reading through the book of Acts, how did they give? Remember we just talked about a story in Acts chapter 5, what did they do? When's the last time you went out and sold one of your most valuable pieces of property and, and brought to the church and laid it at the altar and said, okay, disperse it? They were giving everything. They were all in. They, they had nothing to lose. They were following Jesus. Their life was on the line because they were a threat to the Roman government, so they held nothing back, so they gave everything according to the needs that people have. This is what they did. So if you go to the New Testament, people go, oh, well, maybe we should go back to Old Testament because that was a little bit easier, right? <laughs> but that's missing the point. The point is this. If you can't live generously with your money, then you haven't given your heart to God. You can't. Because your money says more about you than anything else. If you want to know what you value, don't, don't speak it. Go look at your checkbook. Go look at your bank statement. Go look at your credit card statement. That will tell you, beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what's important in my life because this is what I spend my money on. And if that's true, then many of us have to take a step back and say, okay, wait a second. If I'm supposed to give, and so you know, just some of the, some of the, some of I'm going to answer some questions many people ask. How does this work? So as a church, how do we function financially? So when you tithe, and by the way, this is what Kim and I have always done, and when I tell people, so I struggle with giving, what do I do? Start with 10%. Because 10% isn't all of your money, but 10% is a lot of your money, and it will stretch you to be able to give that 10%. And then watch, not how somehow people, I'm going to give 10%, and tomorrow God's going to make me a millionaire. Well, he might do that, but don't get your hopes up for that one, okay? But God, what will God do? He will take care of you. He'll cover you. He'll take care of your needs. Kim and I, even before we got married, we tithe all the time. And I, there's never been a moment in my life where I didn't have food on the table or roof over my head. Never. So, oh, it's because you were born in this family or because you manage your money well. No, because I, have a, I serve a God who takes care of me. Now, does that mean that if someone lives on the street, somehow they're in disobedience? No, there are circumstances beyond their control. But the point being is this. Start with 10%. But so you know how, how, this, how this kind of works practically in the local church, because this is something similar to what's happening there, is that when people, people in our church, we, we are a generous church, but there is a distinction between a tithe and a contribution or offering, a very, very clear distinction. Tithe is what you give ongoingly. Of the, the gross amount of income you have in, your, have in your, your household every year, you give that through the church. That's what they were doing there. This is kind of normal kind of process. It, and again, we're not under the law. I understand that. But an offering comes as something that you respond to God's leading above and beyond your tithe. Why is that important? Because so many times what people do, and this is not just true of our church, this is true in church. So you come to church, you're like, okay, I'm going to tithe, and then some need is shared at the service, and you put a line through tithe, and you say offering. No, it's still a tithe. Like, because what's happening is you're just redirecting your tithe. Now, how does that impact the local church? So you know, we function, our operating expenses function off of people's tithes, not off of offerings. Offerings are given directly through the church to the, the organization or the place of the person that we're giving to. So that means if you just redirect your tithe, all the places that we give to are going to be doing great. 
but we may have to shut up, close up shop because we can't pay salaries, we can't keep the lights on, we can't do the ministry that we're doing because that's, I'm just, some people wonder what that's about. That's how it works. Here's the beauty of our church. We're a very generous church. But God calls us to be generous personally and corporately. So by the way, a couple weeks ago, I don't think we've said this publicly, remember when we took an offering for Haiti a few weeks ago? You know how much money came in one day? $14,000 to help rebuild houses in Haiti. That's awesome. That's amazing. So I, I share that to say, listen, some of you may be here and you're like, I don't tithe or I can give a little bit or whatever I have. But think about this. Do you think that maybe there's a dimension of what God wants to do in your life that you're not quite tapping into yet because you're controlling the money, which, by the way, you don't own? He owns all of it. You're, we, that's why we say we're giving back to God because he's the one that resources our life in the first place. And I, I'm not putting this out, but, but it's interesting that even God said to his people thousands of years ago, what did he say? He said, test me on this one. Try it. Just try it. I'll take care of you, but you need to learn to live generously with the resources that I give you in your life. Now, that's kind of the first part of the message. Now I want to transition to the, the closing part, three things, that because now as we transition more to conclusion, the first three verses of chapter four is what I want to conclude with because now God calling us to return to him as we've seen over and over and over again in the Minor Prophets, the reason God's calling us to return to him is because there is this thing throughout the minor prophets and throughout the Bible called the day of the Lord. And we've seen it throughout and throughout. That is, that is the day of reckoning. That is the day of Jesus' return. That is the day when all of humanity will be held accountable if whether we knew Jesus or we didn't. We're accountable for, for our life and what we did with the life that God gave us. There is this, this day of reckoning. That day is coming. And that's important because that's laced throughout the Minor Prophets. And listen, the day's coming, the day's coming, the day's coming. You need to come back to me. You need to come back to me. You need to follow me. Why? Because you want to end up on the right side of that day. And three things are highlighted in these first three verses that I want to talk about that God will bring to bear. So the first thing is this. Look at verse 1. God will bring judgment of evil. So it says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, for that it will leave them uh, neither root nor branch. So here's the deal. Anybody ever seen anything evil happen in your life? We see things evil every single day. And how many times, is, you can see it throughout human history, you can see it throughout the Bible, but how many times in our life have you Come before the Lord and say, God, it's not fair. That's wrong. That's evil. God, why are you allowing that evil to happen in our world? Why don't you put an end to it? Why don't you stop this? As though somehow we think that those who do evil are going to get away with it. We don't understand God's timing. We're like, why not now? Why not stop it now? But evil will be accountable for its actions. And that's significant because I know if you're like me, there's always this sense inside of you, there's this tension. You see the evil in you, but you see the evil outside of you, and you say, God, it's not fair. Can you just put an end to this? There's that, that, that almost that righteous sense of justice in your life. Anybody relate? You're really black and white. You're like, no, that's wrong, God. Why did you? And sometimes you get to the point where you're like, I want to take matters into my own hands. This is not right. It's not right. So you, you feel that. Growing up, I had a strong sense of wrong and right, and that was good, and I still do, but sometimes I realize that I'm the one that's wrong, and the other person may be right. But when you, you ever felt that, you like, you want to just exact judgment on somebody because in right and, and justice, why? Because it's not fair. 
One of the houses that, that we passed by on that, that walk down or that drive down memory lane the other day for me was the, the Campbell's household. This is my, some of my good friends growing up, and they lived across the street in one house over. And in their house, they had three kids. They had a daughter and two sons. And, and then their youngest son, his name was Gary. And Gary was always the one that was blamed for everything wrong in their family. He was the smallest. He was kind of like, felt like the runt of the litter. And his brother was bigger and more athletic. And, and, and so he would always pick on his brother, always. Anytime we were playing outside, he would make fun of them or, or he would physically harass him. And it just bothered me. But, but Jimmy, who's the older one, Jimmy, no joke, in like third, fourth grade, Jimmy outweighed me by 50 pounds. I probably weighed 50 pounds at that time, but he was big. He played football. And so, and I remember, and Gary was just this little kid, and so he used to just be on his case all the time. And so one time we were outside playing, and, and he, he, I don't know what he was doing, but I remember he was irritating his brother, and he was pushing him around, and finally I had had it. So I said, Jimmy, knock it off. And I tapped him on the shoulder, and as he turned around, I just let one fly. Bam! And just landed just right, right there in his eye and his nose. I mean, just full on. It's every ounce of energy I had in me, I just let it fly and just nailed it right on target. And as it was flying, this is what's going through my head. Even if I hit him, he's still going to kill me because he's so much bigger than I am. But when it landed, his nose started to bleed like profusely. And he grabbed his face, and I was like, oh no, he's going to look at me, and anger in his eyes, and he's going to come after him. But he looked at me, and he started crying like a baby, and he turned around, and he ran to his mom in the house. Now, as he moves, I see his little brother Gary looking up at me, and he had the biggest smile on his face you'll ever want to see. And he's like, thank you. Thank you for saving me finally. You know what's interesting? Every time we played after that, Jimmy was far less to harass his brother. I'll just, can I just honestly, that felt so good. I know it probably wasn't the right thing to do, but it's like, finally, this is wrong, and I'm going to make it right. You know what's great is you don't have to do that. There's an accountability higher than our need for justice, and that's God's requirement of it. God will make it right. God will judge the evil in the world. We can let him do that. He does it better than a punch in the face. Second thing, verse 2 of chapter 4, is that God will bring joy to his people says in verse 2, but for you who fear my name, again, talking of the day of the Lord, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What is God saying? Listen, when I return, the day of the Lord comes. If you fear my name and you follow me, you don't have anything to fear. In fact, it will be a joyous celebration of reuniting with me because I will welcome you into eternity with me. That is what we should look for. And that means that the day of the Lord shouldn't be like, oh no, the day of the Lord. It should be the day of the Lord Jesus comes back. The one that we've been following with our life, the one that we've surrendered to, the one that forgives us, the one that died for us, the one that rose from the dead for us, he's now present in front of us. And there should be this sense of dancing and joy and excitement, not like, oh, crap. <laughs> Seriously, if you think of Jesus returning, think, oh, man, he's going to come and mess everything up. Some of you are just a little bit t- taken back to the fact I could just said crap in church, okay? <laughs> but I'm just being honest. I could say something worse, but I won't do that. But that's the reaction. Why? Because the moment that Jesus comes back, there is this thinking, oh, no, he's going to see everything. I've been playing the, the, the role of the hypocrite, but now he's going to pull the mask off and he's going to see me for who I really am. But if we fear his name and we follow him and we know him, this is the best day of our lives. This is the best day of It could be the day that you die because it's the day that if you follow Jesus, you're going to go into his presence. That's a good day. 
but it's the day where you know that the accountability for you, you're on the right side of that day. And you get to embrace that. Do you have that? There's times in my life where I, I get excited about the fact that either my, in my lifetime, whether I die or Jesus comes back, I get to see him. And I don't, I don't live like, oh, no, I don't want that to happen. No, I, there's this excitement. Like, when you, I get to see you. I don't have to, like, pray to nothing sometimes, it feels like. I get to see your face. I get to be in your presence. I don't have to experience humanity anymore. I don't have to worry about disease and loss and death. I get to be in your presence. What is that going to be like? Anybody get excited about that? You ever been away on a trip and you're excited to come back and see your family? I, 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 I love to travel, but I'm not a great traveler because I actually miss my family. I miss Kim and Courtney and Jordan and I miss little B. We've had her for a few months, but I, I miss seeing her face. And when I went to China a few weeks ago, when we were flying back, and I'm telling you, I, I hate long flights. 14 hours over, and then another 13 broken up on the way back. 11 back from Tokyo, or 10 or 11. And so you're flying, you're like, on a plane for eternity, how could there be this much globe to, f- to cover, right? That's what you feel. And as we're flying, this is it's good news, bad news. The pilot comes on. By the way, we've got a great tailwind. We're flying so fast, we're going to get into LA an hour early. I'm like, yes. He said, but there's a problem. He said, we're going to get in an hour before customs opens. And because we're coming from a foreign country, they won't let us off the plane. I'm like, oh. So we land at LAX, and we're taxing. And so we're like all getting ready for the, an hour wait now. And so, but I'm thinking, Kim's going to be there. And then I'm thinking, no, Jordan's at school, so he's not going to be there. But I think Courtney's schedule, she may be off work. So we have our little stalker app on our phones called Find My Friends, which means find your kids. So I'm like, I'm sitting there, and honestly, I'm sitting next to my dad, and I'm holding my phone because the, the pilot keeps moving around the airport. I don't know what he's doing. And so I'm in and out of reception, but I'm like, I hit Find My Friends, and I'm watching and watching and watching. And, and like after five minutes, boom, it pops up. Courtney's face pops up, and it says LAX. I'm like, yes, she's here too. So I'm like getting excited, you know, get off the plane. Finally, the, they let us off the plane. Then if you've been through customs, you, know, you have to scan your, your passport. And then, no joke, it took the machine six tries to take my picture. I don't know what the deal was. I'm like, really? Come on. I'm like smiling. I'm standing forward. They're like, lean forward, lean back. I'm like, just take the picture. So then you go through the customs agent, you get your luggage, you know, you answer the questions, you're doing everything, and then I'm supposed to kind of be my dad's escort. You know, he's 79, he doesn't act like he's still pretty good shape, but I'm like, Dad, you're walking too slow, let's go, right? Because I know Kim, Courtney, and B are waiting for me, and I remember finally I get to the doors, and I see them, they're on the other side, and I push the door open, and I love it. Kim was feeding the baby, but Courtney jumps up. She's 20, but she's still my baby girl, and she runs over to me, and I see her face, and I'm like, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that anticipation of getting to see the ones that you love. When you think about Jesus' return, there should be that same passion. We get to see him. There's going to be joy. We're going to experience that. And then there's one final thing. We'll close with this. Verse 3, God will bring, obviously, joy to us. He will bring judgment to evil, but also he will bring justice for all. Verse 3, and you shall tread down the wicked. Finally, there's justice for they will be, that's my add-in, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Justice. God will bring justice. What is justice? So we, we have a, a great picture of what justice is in our legal system. So injustice is a lack of, there's no, there's no equality, there's no equalness, there's inequality. So you have the scales. So injustice, the scales are equal, even. Injustice they're uneven, unequal. And so we live in a world where we live in a context of injustice, and we see it all the time. But when Jesus returns, there will be this, 
this equaling out, this level playing field that he will bring, that where there have been those who have been in the place of power and those who have, have exacted injustice on humanity now will be leveled out, and those who have been the recipient of injustice will now be raised to a place of equality. At every place, economically, ethnically, relationally, everything, there's going to be this evening out. That's the beauty of the cross and what it does for humanity. But there's something really important about that. Because many times we look at, we can't wait for justice. But there's a very important question. There's two sides to justice. The question is, what side of justice will you be on when Jesus returns? Now, all of us, the default in our mind, well, of course I'm going to be on the right side of justice. Of course I'm going to experience what, what God wants me to experience. Of course he's going to judge the unjust people, but I'm going to be okay. Are we sure about that? I'm not going to have you turn there, but in Luke, Luke 16, there's a very powerful story that Jesus tells, a very powerful image or parable that he shares to communicate something. And it's a story of a, a, a rich man and then a, a poor man whose name is Lazarus. And the story goes kind of like this. So Jesus explains that in this life, this was what it looked like. You had the rich man and you had the poor man. They knew each other. They crossed paths. But the rich man was so consumed with his wealth and he thought that he had everything and that he experienced financial blessing and joy and because he had money and he had privilege and all those things. And so he was so focused on that that he never had time to look at the inequality between him and this poor man. So for all of his life, he ignored him. And then Jesus says they both died, and they both went into the grave. But when they went to the grave, they went into two separate places in the grave. And something started to happen. So the rich man is in a place of torment, and somehow has the capacity to look from his place of torment across to this place of peace where Lazarus the poor man is. And he can see the difference between where he is and where this poor man is, and he's crying out for help. He's saying, I'm in this place of torment. In fact, even in death, it's crazy. He won't even say the man's name. He says, send the poor man. Send him over to, to come help me. Like he's a servant. Come to touch my tongue so that I can find some relief from this torment that I'm in. And it's like, no, that's not going to happen. Why? Because in your life, you experienced all the goodness at the expense of the poor man. And now in eternity, the poor man is on the right side of justice. And when you look at that, to me, when I read the story, that kind of scares me a little bit. It should scare me a little bit. Because I'm thinking, okay, am I, am I on the wrong side of justice in my life? Do I, do I try to live as a Christian, but really I'm more of a hypocrite? That it's really not true? I'm just on the outside of making it look good so that someday when I stand before God, he's going to say, listen, you had all that stuff in your life, but now we have. Or do I live in a place where I'm totally dependent on who Jesus is? for everything, for my resources, for my salvation, for my life, for any joy or happiness in my life, so that when I get to eternity, I'm on the right side of justice. How do you end your life on the right side of justice? It's Jesus. I'm going to close with this. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray. I know this is a difficult way to end this series, but this is the call that Jesus has made to his people for thousands of years. How God has spoken through the prophets, how God still speaks to us today. So I want you just to capture the image of what Jesus is saying when he described this concept of the day of the Lord. 
Jesus actually said, on that day, people will come to me and they will say that they know me. And when they say they know me, they will give a list of all the things that they have done to justify knowing me. They will list their miracles. They will list their good deeds. They will list all the things on the outside appear as though they would be consistent with someone we would call a Christian. But then the scariest words come at the end of the conversation when Jesus looks at them and then he says, depart from me because I never knew you. And that person ends up on the wrong side of justice. They end up on the wrath side, not the redemption side. The only difference between someone who ends up on the wrath side from the person who ends up on the redemption side is knowing Jesus. Is knowing Jesus. Now, how do you know Jesus? Now, for some, this is basic, but just with your eyes closed, focus on this. When you embrace Jesus, he is never an add-on to your life. He never comes additionally. He always comes foundationally, which means to fully embrace Jesus requires something that we have a tendency to forget. It's a thing called repentance. It means that I don't just add Jesus on to all the stuff in my life and try to make my life better. I actually turn away from the things that I used to value, the things that I used to do, the lifestyle that I used to live, the sin that I used to engage, the addiction that I found myself in, the broken way of thinking, all of what was a part of who I was, I actually repent, which means I turn from and I turn towards Jesus. And then I commit my life to follow out that path. And then at that moment of repentance, Jesus comes through his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy and he washes away our past as we've repented and turned from it. And he says to us, all you have left is the future. Your past is dead to you. That's what baptism is as well. It's that image. I die to everything that I used to be, but I rise to everything God wants me to be. And as I close in prayer, I'm going to ask you to just do some soul searching. You may have made, prayed a prayer. You may have come before it in an altar call. You may have done something and said, yeah, I, I was a Christian. But maybe today you're feeling this is the beauty of what happens when God's Spirit comes to bear on our lives. The Bible's clear. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict of sin, of righteousness, and truth. And right now, he may be convicting us of our own sin, of our things. Like, I need to repent from that. I need to turn from that because I really want to know Jesus. And I don't want anything to get in the way of that. So right now, as I pray, I'm going to ask you, you might need to confess, Lord, I, I, am, I am turning from that. I am turning from the thought of divorce. I am turning from a selfish way of looking at my finances. I am turning from being a hypocrite. I am turning from the addictive behavior that I've lived out. I am turning from being dishonest. I am turning from trying to make my life work. I am turning from those things so, Jesus, I can follow you and I can know you so that when that day comes, I can embrace it with joy and celebrate that at last we are reunited forever. So, Lord Jesus, would you come by your spirit right now as we conclude this morning, we conclude this series I pray for each one of us, Lord, if, if anyone is here and they've never fully given their life in a foundational way to you, I pray in this moment, Jesus, they would turn their life over to you. Your death 
on the cross, took our past and washed it away and gave us forgiveness and cleansed us. In your life, your resurrection proved you have the power over sin and death. That we can follow you in this life and in the life to come because we know that you are the only one that can transform us. You're the only one that can bring freedom. You're the only one that can guarantee life because you are the one that conquered death. So Lord, let us follow you moving forward. Let us hear the call of your prophets for thousands of years. Return to me. Come back to me. Be restored to me. Lord Jesus, let us learn from these voices so that we don't become like those who went before us but we become the people that you want us to be as we move forward. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your work in our life and your faithfulness, Jesus, in your name. Amen.